Do you want to go down to a 40-hour week without losing revenue? If you're ready to let go of all the extra hours, the stress, the overwhelm, and the clients who hijack your time, consider my signature program, Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind. In it, we'll get your accounting practice under control. We'll fix your pricing problems. I'll show you ways to price so you stop giving away the farm so you bring in more revenue for the work you're already doing. I'll help you disengage the clients who are good people but are holding your business back and slowing you down. I'll help you package up your services and design them so they're easy for your clients to understand and choose from while helping you simplify and standardize what you sell. And we'll focus on making your messaging more interesting and compelling so you attract more of the kinds of clients you want to work with and break out of the hodgepodge of referrals trap. We get your prices up, we get your workload down. We standardize, we simplify, we streamline. And we do this at a pace that feels doable, where you feel confident in every choice you make. Prices up, workload down. Registration is open now. We start Tuesday, May 7th. Come with us. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to find out more. Welcome to the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast, where I help you work less and make more. My name is Geraldine Carter. Many CPAs work super long hours, and they go for periods of time where their head is down getting work done. And when your head is down getting work done, it's possible that ways to provide value to clients might be getting missed. But when your head is down and you're busy because you need to get the work done in order to get paid, how do you take the time to find out what your clients might be wanting that you might not know about or that they might not be able to articulate? Here today to talk with me about this is my guest, Rochelle Moulton. Rochelle turns consultants and big thinkers into authorities. She earned her consulting and big thinker stripes, leading introverted brainiacs at some powerhouse global consulting firms like Towers Perrin and Arthur Anderson. But even better, she has built, led, and sometimes sold more than a few six, seven, and eight-figure consulting businesses and earned the equivalent of a second MBA building authority brands and businesses with hundreds of soloists. She has recently launched a mastermind to build wealth in the form of money, time, and flexibility for soloist women in the expertise space. Rochelle Moulton, welcome back to the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Geraldine. I'm so excited to be back. I'm excited to have another conversation with you. And for listeners, if you want to go back and catch Rochelle's previous episode, which ranks in the top five of my most downloaded episodes, go back and get it. It's number 166. I know. Hooray. Confetti. (laughs) It's awesome. All right. So what we're talking about today is the idea of a listening tour because this has come up in multiple places. It's percolating. And so we want to surface it to see what's here for listeners and how they can benefit, which is namely being able to get get your head up and out so that you can hear more of what your clients and prospects want so that you can provide more value more easily with less effort so that you can get your time back without having to work so many hours. So let's just start with what a listening tour is and how did you even get started on this path? Okay, so the way I think of a listening tour is you're actually speaking to people. This is not like sending emails back and forth. You are scheduling time with them, very focused time, and you're going to ask them a very specific list of questions to get insight into something that you're trying to figure out. 
right? So that something could be you want to design a new service or a new product or a new program. There's something new that you want to do and you want to really increase your chances of success by listening to the key people in your space. And when I say the key people, people who meet your definition of the ideal client or buyer for this thing that you're thinking about. And in the green room, we talked a little bit about why even do this? If somebody's happy doing what they're doing, is a listening tour something that they should be thinking about or not? Well, I mean, if you're just saying, hey, I love what I do. I love exactly the way that I do it. I think this is going to last this way forever. Don't do it. Right. But if you're starting to think, hmm, I might like to pivot. I might like to try this thing. I might like to try working this way. I might like to try serving this specific slice of my audience. When those questions start to come into your head, that's a good time to start thinking about a listening tour. Because what I found in my own and my client's experience is that what we think our audience wants is not necessarily what they actually will buy. Oh, say a little bit more about that. What you think your audience wants is not necessarily what they'll buy. Yeah. Yeah, there's a difference between what they want and what they'll actually buy. So again, it depends on the way you structure the questions in the listening tour, but I like to have that final question giving them some kind of a straw man to react to. And what I found on my last listening tour is that what I thought my audience would would want and I wasn't sure because I was trying something new, a gender-specific option, was not at all what they wanted. And in fact, had I just designed it based left to my own devices, I would have uh, had the wrong things in it. I would have priced it too low by half and nobody would have bought it. The high-end women I wanted to get would have said the price is too low. Eh. And the women who were kind of just starting out who maybe could benefit from it would look at it and say the price is too high. So it would have been dead in the water. I'm absolutely convinced of that had I not done the listening tour. Part of the reason that this is interesting for me and my audience at this moment is that we've just done a round of CPA Reboot Camp where we're taking a number of CPAs and accountants and we are redesigning their services based on what we think their audience wants, right? And we are taking some educated guesses about what we think their prospects, their ideal buyers are going to benefit from, are going to value from, going to get value from, and will ostensibly buy. In this case, this did not include a listening tour. It presupposes some amount of regularly listening to your clients and just paying attention to the things that they say. But it's not the same as like a full-on listening tour. Why I think this concept is valuable for this audience is that having a better understanding of what your clients want beyond what you think they want and making sure that you set up so that they buy will save you time and heartache in the long run, right? And you'll offer a better service. Let's make this a little bit more concrete for listeners just so they have a better picture of the thing that you just built and are now selling. Can you just give us a high level on what that program is, how long it is, who's in it, what it includes, what it costs, like that? Sure. So it is an eight-month program. Uh, We're calling it a mastermind. The goal was eight to 12 members, so kind of the right mix of not too many, not too few What they get is we meet twice a month for eight months via Zoom. In addition to that, everyone gets four one-on-one coaching calls with me. One of those happened before our first call. The rest of them are scheduled at their convenience. 
uh, and then the other thing, obviously, is where we started was everybody had a different goal. My original intention was, oh, let's all make $100,000 in eight months. Um, and what I learned was, hence my new definition of wealth, is that this was about more than money. This was about how many hours they worked. It was how much money they made relative to the effort they put in. And no one wanted to have this overall money goal and be pressured on that money. Now, some people did. There's a couple of people that have very specific money goals, but there's a mix of goals, but they all relate to how do I optimize my the money I'm making in my business, my time, and my flexibility. And I would also add to that flexibility as being able to work in my genius zone, which looks different for each one of us. Right. Yep. Okay. And what was the price? What's the price on the mastermind for eight months? 10000 How many people are in it, you said? Uh, there's actually six. I had 10 applications. Yeah, I had 10 applications. I didn't feel I could accept all of them and have the group be right. So we did six. You said at the outset that if you had offered the thing that you were imagining and sold it the way that you were initially thinking about it, that it wouldn't have worked for a few reasons. So what did you find in your listening tour that changed your perspective on what your clients or what your prospects really wanted? Ah, interesting. There were a lot of things that uh, that came up. A um, few things. One was that these women were really frustrated with existing programs. And when I started this, I wasn't expecting to serve just soloists. I was thinking women in the expertise space. But what happened is they were they happened to be mostly soloists, the, the women I, I talked to. And they said, you know, we're so frustrated because there's these other people and they would name some some women with women centric programs that they really admired, really respected. But the whole their whole approach was about having employees. They said, but I don't want to have employees. I'm a soloist. I love this. I want to make money. I want to leverage, but not with employees. So that was a big thing. Oh, the other thing was that I made this assumption that they were going to want some kind of content, right? Because, you know, we buy content, we buy wisdom. And so, and I was worried about that because I thought, I don't want to build this big content vault and then not have it be valued. And I don't want to do all that before I start. So I was kind of, you know, in my questioning, I was trying to get at, would they work with me on letting me build this content vault over time? Like, how important was that? Well, it turns out content was not important at all. Pretty much to a person, they said, I don't care about content. I have content coming out the wazoo. (laughs) I don't need that. I actually know what to do. What I want is I want some other people to challenge me on it. I want them to be roughly where I am. And our challenges could be a little different, but I want to feel, you know, some commonality with this. And I want a guide. You know, I want somebody to make sure that this happens. I don't just want random people in the room. And To a person, the other thing they told me, although this, I guess I would say this didn't surprise me, but I just hadn't really thought about it, is it was all about the cohort. It was all about who was in the room. Because I was originally thinking this would be more of like a membership option or maybe a group coaching. But as it started to morph, it's all about who's in the room. And so it became, and I think somebody said this to me directly, it's basically, do I trust you? to put the right people in the room. And if they are there, 
this is worth a lot of money to me. And if they're not, it's worth nothing. Maybe, it might even be negative if you think about it, because I'd be putting time into something that I wasn't getting something back for. So interesting. So you went into it thinking one of the primary value pieces might be around the content. Yep. But at the end of the day, the primary, a primary value piece was around something that wasn't even on your radar initially, which was the cohort. And I'm wondering in the cohort, is it about the networking opportunities or is it about the collective brilliance and being able to get high quality ideas or both? It's more the latter. I did have a couple of people where we have similar kinds of audiences and they kind of looked at this as a Petri dish of a way to get you know, a collective perspective on their stuff. That wasn't the only reason they joined. But yeah, it was really it was really about the group because any, if, if they just wanted to work with me, they could just buy that, right? This, they ha- the reason you get into a mastermind is because of that experience, and this is what they're telling me, is that experience of the other people in the group. So they really, you have to have a high trust in the leader of the group, and then you have to feel some comfort around how you define who gets in the group. And one of the things that happened is as I was talking to people, they said, well, you know, if if I'm making $200,000 a year and I'm in this other program that they'd experienced, they're going to put me in a room with other people earning $200,000 a year. Makes sense, right? The problem is if I'm an expert, and I'm a soloist, I, if I'm making $200,000 a year, I'm taking home most of that, right? Most of that goes right to my bottom line. If you're a shop owner, like if you have a bakery and you're making $200,000, you might have a partner, you might have four employees, you might be taking home twenty dollars or $30,000. So it was a very different experience. So what happened is that left to my own devices, I don't know that I would have put such tight numbers around, you know, income level. I mean, I would have done something. I don't think I would have made it as tight. But what they told me was, I want to know where I am in the room. So, uh, and where I said it was 200,000 to I think 500,000, or maybe it was 450, being a logical break point. So if somebody was earning 450, they would join knowing that they're at the top end of the group. Right. And if somebody joined at 200, they'd know, OK, I'm I'm here at the bottom in terms of revenue. And so they had a sense of where they were. That was really, really important to the group. And they gave me feedback when I did my sales page and I didn't make the the entry point high enough. I got feedback, which I paid attention to. Interesting. So interesting in a number of ways. I want to go back to the surprise that the cohort was of high value relative to your expectation and ask you about what did that require of you in terms of shifting your own mindset in terms of who you are and what you bring to the table? Because as a brand expert and authority consultant in that space, now suddenly that's not what you're being asked to deliver. And what you're assembling is instead a group of people, which is something of an identity shift of like, oh, I thought my value was over here. Turns out the value that I can create is over there. Who am I if I'm creating value over there when I thought my value was in creating value over here? How did that, did that mess with your mind at all? Or were you totally like, yeah, no problem. Of course I can create a cohort. 
both. <laughs> so here's here's what was it was funny because it, yeah it, I'll be perfectly candid it was like an ego thing like right. really that's what I'm getting at thank yeah, you you didn't you didn't really need me okay um, <laughs> it, it was in part but what's what's funny you know ironic funny is that in my big firm consulting life from years ago my value was in facilitating. That was my skill, was having a bunch of, because I did mergers and acquisitions. So I, I dealt with rooms full of warring people and figuring out how we come out with something. And when you're the facilitator, you don't really have an opinion. I mean, you have one, but you don't say it, right? Your job is to get it, is to be the neutral party and pull this out. And, and five minutes after I went, oh, huh. I'm not sure if I'm like insulted or <laughs> thrilled about this. And then I went, oh my God, I can use this skill that I don't use anymore that I love. I mean, I really enjoy it being able to, you know, get people on the hot seat and get them to think about it and do it in a way that is not rude or, you know, inconsiderate. I mean, I ask direct questions, but I'm not going to, you know, embarrass somebody publicly for the sake of making a point, right? So yeah, so it does require you, well, the whole process of a listening tour, if you're going to listen to the results you get, is it does require you to be really open to what they're saying. And because they already know you, I'm making that assumption that you're not going to people that you don't know, they have a view of what you can do. And they will ask for the things that they would like for you to do for them, which is not always what you want to do. <laughs> does that make sense? It does make sense. So how do you deal with it if you're getting answers that are like, uh, that's great, but that's not what I want to do? All right. So let's, let's look at it this way. If I'm thinking in my head that I'm designing A and what they want is B, so when I get to the end of that conversation, then the question that I have to ask and your listeners have to ask too is, do I want to do B, right? In this particular case, yes, I want to do B. I love to do B. It's amazing. It hits on all the all my cylinders. And it's funny because I do this for a living. You would think I would know this about myself, but I was so convinced that people wanted something that I saw around me that I think I just assimilated this idea that they wanted what else was available. Instead, they said, this is what I want you to do for me. And it happened to you know perfectly align. If it didn't align, I wouldn't have done it. And but I would argue that the listening tour was still valuable because they told me what they wanted. I'm like, that's great, but I don't want to do that. Okay, thank you very much. And I, I've accomplished something because I didn't waste my time building something that no one would like uh, or that no one would buy, I should say. I'm sure somebody would like it, but that no one was going to buy. I haven't wasted my time. Maybe I got my feelings hurt a little bit that they didn't want this beautifully wrapped gift that I'd wanted to give them. But, you know, you get over that pretty fast. Yeah, and better to have your feelings hurt a little bit in advance than to just build the thing, launch it, have crickets show up with tumbleweed rolling through, and then your feelings hurt a lot more because all the time you invested building the thing. That's way worse. <laughs> so I'm trying to imagine what's going on in the minds of listeners right now. And if I had to take a guess, they're pro they might be thinking, I get how this works for Rochelle, but this feels really abstract for me to do in my own business. I'm an accountant. 
I keep track of people's numbers. I give them their reports. We talk about their money. We talk about their kids and who's going to be head of household and any other life events that are happening and then done. This feels, I like what you're talking about, but it feels way too squishy and it wouldn't apply over here. If somebody's having that thought or something like it, how could a listening tour be valuable to them? So let's take an example. I have an accountant, CPA, who specializes in women-owned businesses. Now, it's a fairly new relationship, so I actually don't know how she came to do that, but I do know that she had a business before that wasn't specializing. So I'm just going to imagine that I'm her at the point where I was deciding that I want to focus on women-owned businesses. And I'm going to assume, always dangerous, but I'm going to assume that she had these feelings. Maybe it was that she had a client or two or three that were women owned, maybe even a specific kind of business. And she said, oh, I love working with them. This feels so different for whatever reason. I'm using my expertise in a different way. Or uh, or it could be that she had a really bad experience where things went awry. And she said, you know what? Uh, mom to four kids, I, I I want something different. I want more control over my life. So in those kinds of situations, the way that I would do a listening tour, and you might not even, you could talk to some of your existing clients. You might want to talk to some people who aren't your clients, right? If you're not happy with your clients, you probably want to find some who could be your ideal clients. And then that's a little bit different exercise because you're trying to find some people who appear to be, because you don't know for sure, but they appear to be in your sweet spot or the sweet spot you're imagining for yourself. And then what you want to do with those people is ask them some very, very specific questions, right? Every accountant I've ever worked with loves specific questions. Like the more specific, the better. So you ask these people questions like some sort of qualifying questions so you understand enough about their business. Maybe you don't ask them about revenue. Maybe that's a little too personal. But you talk about, you ask them, what are the challenges that you have right now in your business? And somebody says, well, it's growing. I'm stuck here. I'm not growing. Okay. Um, tell me more about that. What specifically is happening? And as you're listening, you're starting, your wheels are starting to turn and you're hearing things that are actionable. One of the things you're going to get out of this that you just don't believe you're going to going in, but you come out with it is you're getting words and phrases from your ideal audience and you're hearing the way they describe a thing and you can use those words it, they're like, it's like, you know, mana from heaven to your ideal audience. When they see and hear those words, they're like, oh, this is for me. So you can absolutely make this really specific. You can also, if you're not sure yet, start with something that is, um, I don't want to say not tangible because I think the questions have to be very direct, but you don't have to have a solution to present. You just absorb the data. And what I found is there's um, the magic number appears to be 10. Of interviews? Of interviews. If you've done 10 interviews and you're not getting anything like anything, you're not getting themes, you're not getting anything. No pattern. Yeah, this is not it. 
stop. On the other hand, if if you just get a scatter plot of answers, does that mean what does that mean? Well, it could mean two things. One is it could mean that you're not asking questions in the right way. And let me give you an example. We had a on a call I was on this morning, somebody was describing this listening tour that they had done and they did a great job of asking all the questions till they got to the very last one. And they said, "So, based on what I've told you, is there anything I can help you with?" The worst closing question ever right (laughs) you've just sunk the ship of trust yeah and so you know this person was saying you know why didn't i get anything from this well that's why that's why being you're going into it with an agenda to sell yeah no yeah Yeah, because you have you have interviews and you have sales conversations this is an interview it is not a sales conversation yeah it is not a sales conversation no but you can ask them for feedback. I mean, the, the way I love to phrase that last question is, okay, once you get to the point where you kind of have a straw man to play with, you say, so if I offered X and it looked like this and it had these benefits or these features and it costs this much, would you whip out your credit card and buy it? Yes or no? And, you know, and I'm not asking you to buy it. I'm just saying, what would your reaction be? And so when you, when we're talking about numbers of interviews. So if you do five interviews and you're presenting a straw man for most of those and you don't always start with a straw man but if you are and people are going yes 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 you know five interviews might be enough I'd probably keep going to make sure that it wasn't an anomaly or I hadn't selected an unusual group of people or something but if you're getting seven eight and I would never do more than 10 if you're getting that at 10 stop stop you got a winner all you have to do is, you know, bring it to life at that point. <laughs> now deploy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The easy part. So, so if you have, I mean, could it be that if you have a scatter plot of answers that your target market is too broad? It could be. That's a, actually, that's a really good point. It could be. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's hard to tell unless you, I mean, you really do have to pay attention to what the scatter plot, you know, where the scatters are. Right, because sometimes you can draw a line and go, "Oh, well, there's a lot that are concentrated in this one area," and you really have to go back through your notes, or if you're recording them, listen to the recordings, so that you can zero in on those. And sometimes you can circle back to those people and say, "I just want to make sure I understood what you meant when you said this." Right. So does that mean, you know, and then insert your your question. Okay, I want to talk a tiny bit more about mechanics just to give people a sense of if they were to do this, you know, like, what are we talking about? How many questions? How long are the interviews? Like, how long does this whole thing take? And then I want to get to what you do once you have your, you start to have your straw man. So just quickly, if you would give listeners a sense of like, how long are these conversations? How long are these interviews? Um, how far in advance do you need to schedule them? Are people pretty amenable? Or are they like, uh, I really don't want to do that for you? Sure. So I like 30 minute calls. Could you spend an hour and get more information? Absolutely. But people are less likely to agree to an hour call than a half an hour. Um, The other thing is if somebody's really rolling at 30 minutes, I will say, excuse me, I know I promised 30 minutes. I would love it if you would keep going. Is that okay with you? And if they're on a roll, nine times out of 10, they say yes. So that's the first thing. I ask um, between five and seven questions. It kind of depends on, well, let let me just logistically, this is what I do because I just love to be prepared. I love to have everything together. So once I know who I'm going to talk to, I go to their website and I look at their stuff so that I'm not stupid. 
about what they do, who it looks like their audience is, what their message is. And then my first question will usually be based off that. So like I see on your website that you, uh, you know, are doing business strategy for CPAs and these are your clients. You know, can we talk about that? Yes. Once I do that, I will actually create a physical document with all the questions in it with room to write my answers because I don't want to be distracted. It reminds me and I I put the questions in big, large type so I don't forget one as we're getting into a conversation. I mean, I try to make it for me idiot proof, as idiot proof as I can make it. And so I will start with that. And then um, those five to seven questions will depend on where I am in the process. If it's the first one, chances are I don't have a straw man unless it's so logical, like they're answering every question that I asked them exactly the way that I thought they would. And it doesn't usually happen, at least not the first time out. So um, by the time I get to a straw man, I may spend less time on the earlier questions and more time getting their reaction to the straw man. It, you know, again, it depends. So in terms of uh, some of the kinds of questions that I would ask, you know, I mentioned that I'll, I'll open with something about their business because I don't want them to think that I would take their time for granted. I really want to make sure that I understand where they're coming from. I will ask questions like, in the case of the Soloist Women one, um, I'd never done a gender specific thing before. So I, I didn't know. So, so I said, I would like to talk to you about your experience with women-centered programs to grow your business. And so it wasn't, you know, 100% open. I wanted to talk about women-centric and to grow your business. And in the course of the early questions, I wanted to make sure that growing their business was an issue. And that's where I also heard more things about, yes, I want to grow my business, but I don't want to do it through the hustle model. I want to be able to work less. I want to be able to have some flexibility with how I spend my time. Or, you know, sometimes it was just that they weren't earning enough yet, right? And that was that was the big issue. And then I would ask them to tell me about the challenges around growing their business. Like, what's your biggest challenge? And they would start talking. And sometimes I might say, well, tell me more about that. Or other times it so jive with what somebody else said that I would move to another question. One of the things, questions I just love asking is, who do they look to for advice and counsel? And, you know, and, and usually they'll say, they'll be very focused in the digital space or in books. They'll say, well, I read so-and-so's book on this and that's the Bible. And then here's some, like when I asked this question, here are some coaches that are doing this. That's how I learned about so many focusing on businesses with employees and believing that's the only way to grow. So they will give you that kind of information. At the same time, I don't think you want to be too terribly rigid. You know, here I am saying I have my form, I have my seven questions, but I don't follow them always in order. Um, I will spend more time with some, you know, it's very much of being in the moment with, with that person. And following your nose and kind of sniffing out the things that are of interest to you that you want to dig into a little more. Exactly. For a long time, I had spent my own mental bandwidth trying to figure out what was the right thing for my people. And then I heard somebody say, there's no single right thing. You make the thing and then you get to work making it right. And that just blew my mind. I was like, wait a minute, you mean there's not a right answer? <laughs> Foiled. 
was both terrifying and freeing because I was like, oh, no, I'm never going to find the right answer. I thought I could find it. And now you're telling me there isn't one. Now I have to go create something. But it was freeing because I was like, it was permission to create the thing and then find ways to make it amazing. And I was like, oh, okay, right? And it sort of unleashed a new level of creativity for me in my own thinking about what I was building for people. So that was this winter. I was deep in some bumps with some powder on them. On a, <laughs> and I was like, get me out of here. I remember this. Anyway, it doesn't matter. No, I, I think that, that's a great analogy, though. You know, you're on the ski slope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. I was like all hung up. It was it was a potato stay. Anyways, so you just you remember the moment where you have the light bulb go off, right? And then I think this is where I <laughs> reached out to you and we started this back and forth because it has taken me 1500 miles of running to get to the thing that I'm about to launch. It didn't just come to me in a flash overnight where I was like, Eureka, I found it, right? Like here's the Pythagorean theorem. It was more like, I have this idea and I just need to nurse it and nurse it and nurse it and keep on at it until I get there. And I can tell you that I run every day five miles. So it's been, you know, a year is 1500 miles to be like, I think I have this thing. I find like it didn't come to me overnight is my point. And I just launched the first one, CPA Reboot Camp. Now going to launch version two, which is CPA Mastermind. That, you know, version 1.0 was like, I think this is really great. And now that I've deployed it and put it in play, now I see how to make it even better. Like, and version two is killer. It is so good because I had to make version one, which was very good and see what worked about it and what people responded to, what was useful, what was helpful, where they got hung up, where I overwhelmed them inadvertently, all that stuff. I had to make it and like take it out of the oven three quarters baked. It was a little wiggly in the middle, but it was still awesome. Anyways, (laughs) can you talk about not getting caught in the thinking of you're going to have a eureka moment where like it, the clouds are going to part and all of a sudden you're going to have your thing in a box and it's going to be amazing. Like how does it actually work once you deploy it? Yeah. Oh, I so relate to your story. And I've had moments where something just flashed and I went, aha, that's it. I mean, I kind of did that with the book, but that was after I incubated on it for five freaking years before I had the, right? See? this moment. I'm like, oh, duh. Why didn't I think of that five years ago? Because you need that soak time. And sometimes it, is, it isn't even about the idea. It's about feeling confident enough to put your voice out there with other voices So, yeah, and I think the other thing is that I'm the kind of person that I like to have things baked. I don't want the wiggly (laughs) bits in the middle. My natural personality is it's going to be baked or if you're at my house, you're not going to get it, right? I'm not going to serve it to you if I don't think it's going to be really good. And so I've had to fight, I would say the last maybe six or seven years, I have to fight that tendency right and left. Because I did that, but I'll just, you know, I'll own this fully. I mean, I did one of those programs where I did no research and I created this six week monstrosity of a program with 35 videos, this whole thing. It didn't launch to crickets exactly, but it felt like crickets after all that work I put into it to just get a handful of people when I was hoping for 30, 40, or 50. Um, And the second time I did it, I got even fewer. So it was like big, colossal waste of time, 
horrible. And I made a vow to myself, I am never doing that again. Never, ever, ever. I'm not going to do anything where I, I'm not, you can never be sure, but where I'm not comfortable that what I've designed is what my ideal audience wants to buy. So having said all that, it was interesting with, with the mastermind because I felt the same way you did. It was like, oh, this is great. Oh my God, how am I going to deliver this? It's going to be different from what I've been doing. You know, and so that was the terror part. It's like these women are counting on me to provide an experience for them. And so what happened, which I think is really good, is that I put a lot of energy once the group was formed and I knew the the front end process, I was going to do the one-on-ones, but I asked some very specific questions in there. And then I designed the first meeting. Did I design all 16? No, I did not. I designed one meeting and we did that one meeting and then I designed the next one. And what was funny and very scary is in those initial coaching sessions, now they'd already bought the the thing, right? And they said, so can you tell me what we're going to do over the next eight months? Like exactly what we're going to do. And I was like, no, <laughs> I can tell you, I can tell you how we're going to get together. I can tell you, you know, how we're going to interact and we're going to have hot seats, but no, I'm not, I can't tell you yet. I have some things I'm working on and I, I hope you'll really enjoy them. And I want to hear your feedback as we go. So that's different than having something charted out exactly ahead of time. But again, with a mastermind, it's, I think it's different in the sense that everyone has a unique goal. And as I've said to them time and time again, my job is to get you what you want. So that's how I think about it in every one of our gatherings, whether it's all of us together or me one-to-one, it's reminding them of what they want and then trying to design a way for them to get it or ask the questions because it's not like I have you know, this magic answer. The answer is in them. And having the courage to try some of the ideas that they've been playing with. It's that, it's again, it's what I heard in listening to her. I know what to do. I just need to do it and get some feedback as I'm doing it. Yes, and I need some people to talk to you to make sure I'm not completely crazy with my ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And people who can help me like maybe refine it a little bit and so that I makes it even better than I would have on my own. Exactly. So I want to ask you about this last piece here as we wrap up. The I'm coming back to the structure of what you've offered of what you've offered. Ten thousand dollars for eight months mastermind with a small group of other women who are in a similar location on their own journey. Really what the offer is is connection to the cohort to tap into the genius that exists, to be able to get time back, in some cases make more money, but sounds like not nearly universally, and to be able to have flexibility to set your own schedule and to do more work in your genius zone. None of those things, well, okay, the money part is, the time part is quantifiable, but when you talk about flexibility, we talk about working in your genius zone those are much more qualitative things, right? They're not paying, by contrast, for a set of reports. They're not paying to have their accounting done. Some of these things that they're paying for are abstract. It's the dream. It's the dream, right? And yet it's enormously valuable. And the reason that I ask this question is because I get so much pushback 
from my audience about they won't pay this for that. They won't pay this for that. They won't pay this for that. And so in your program, there were four main pieces that you mentioned that your participants, they wanted their time back. They wanted flexibility. They wanted to be working in their genius zone. And a couple of them, but certainly not the majority, wanted to make more money. So we have a few things in here that are ethereal, that are abstract. And you're charging $10,000 for an eight-month program. And I'm wondering, compared to my listeners who deliver concrete things and sometimes find it challenging to back into value for squishy things, how did you position it in order to be able to confidently charge what you're charging for something that from the outside looking in might be kind of squishy? You know, that's a really good question. I hope I can come up with a good answer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think part of it is that I'm known for being very specific about things, right? And I, yes, I have my, you know, my squishy side as, as you might say, but I'm, I'm known for asking questions that make people think about strategy, about choices, about trade-offs. So I think some of that was inherent in the brand. But the other thing that one of the, I forget exactly how I said it, but I said something like the bro hustle culture is not calling your name. So I was trying to position myself against the, you have to work every hour of every single day or you will never be successful. This was about finding a way, I don't want to say to have it all, but finding a way to have a life that you value with a business that you value. But I I, I want to come back to your question because I can feel myself, I'm imagining that I'm a CPA and I'm known for my results. I'm known for my tax returns right? I get it on time and I get it right. Well, as a user of CPA services, as a business owner, I can tell you that I value a lot more than just getting a tax return that doesn't have errors on it. I value having somebody to talk to. In fact, it's why I made a CPA switch recently, is I wanted somebody who actually wanted to talk to me ahead of time. Before I earned the income that we were worried about filing taxes on, I wanted somebody who would plan with me. I wanted somebody who would ask me questions about my business that I hadn't thought to ask. I wanted someone who would volunteer information on what I needed to do for this stage in my business. And my accountants up to that point, I've only had maybe like two in 20 years, but they never asked me those questions. They were very much, I don't want to say an order taker because, you know, they told me what to do, but they just, they delivered this thing in a box. And that that box is a commodity, to me anyway, it's a commodity. What I wanted to pay for was the relationship and the advice. Now, am I the same as every other business owner? Probably not. I might be a subset of your practice. I might be 5%. But oh, guess what? I might be willing to pay three or four times more to get that advice. And so the listening tour is, and again, if you don't if you're not interested in doing this, you don't need to do a listening tour. But if you're starting to say, I want to look at my practice differently, I want to see what else I could do to get out of this day-to-day killer schedule in big chunks of the year, then you can start asking those questions and finding your people. I love it. 
a listening tour to get out of the killer commodity box. Rochelle Moulton, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast. Thank you so much, Geraldine. This was fun. Are you wondering what your clients might find valuable that you haven't yet thought to include in your services? Just like Rochelle used a listening tour to help her build a five-figure mastermind, you can use a listening tour to help you build out more valuable services, the very services your clients and ideal buyers are looking for and would be delighted to pay you for. It's in interviewing your ideal buyers that you put yourself in position to offer something uniquely valuable to the marketplace. And when your offer is unique, you leave the competition behind. When you create value, you can capture that value in your pricing. And when you create loads of value that you can capture with dialed in pricing, you can do less work for fewer clients. When you do less work and for fewer clients, but you capture the high value you create with your dialed-in pricing, then you are on the right path to working less and making more. It can start with going on a listening tour. If you want to be on the path to working less and making more, be sure to subscribe to my daily drip of business strategy for CPAs, which you can do at GeraldineCarter.com. You'll get one easily digestible tip a day on how to position your business, how to price your services, and how to sell outcomes so that you can be more profitable, get your time back, and get off the tax hamster wheel for once and for all. That URL again is GeraldineCarter.com. All right, that's it from me. Have a great week. Hi again. Would you rather spend your weekends outside playing or at your desk? In Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind, we put an end to overworking while maintaining revenue. Registration is open now, but it won't be for long. Go to GeraldineCarter.com now to enroll today.